I would ask you to turn with me to the book of 2 Kings. If you have your Bible, hopefully you do. The book of 2 Kings is in the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. All right? So you can try to find your way through it. If you have a hard time, look in the table of contents. But turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1 through 18. Now, for the past 10 weeks, this is week 11. We have been discussing a man or the prophet by the name of Elijah. As we have learned, who is a man just like us, in that he had a nature just like ours. The book of James chapter 5 says Elijah uh, with a nature, had a nature just like ours and he prayed that it would not rain and it did not rain for three and a half years. And God answered that. So we've been looking at this man, seeing him in all of his glory. We've, been, we've seen his great victories and we've seen his defeat. Now we come to the end of the road. We come to the time where he is leaving this earth. It's one of the most amazing stories in all of Scripture. And hopefully we can see just how glorious it was together and catch a glimpse of this wonderful servant of God right before he leaves earth. So we are in 2 Kings chapter 1, I mean chapter 2, and we'll be reading, reading uh, through verse, verse actually 14, but I'd like to continue on a little bit and all the way till 18 as well. So please stand with me for the honor of reading God's word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet... If you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces, and he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to, to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed down to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men. And for three days they sought him but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Blessed be to the reading and understanding of His Word. You may be seated. Now, we all know, we hear the story of of Elijah being caught up in a chariot of fire. So, naturally, I had to think of the movie by the same name. You can see the beach scene, can't you? You hear the music. Slow motion. That was pretty bad. Come on. So we think of the movie. Now, the movie is pretty fascinating. And I, I thought of this movie. It's all about a guy named Eric Little. How many of you have ever heard of Eric Little? 
Some of you have heard of Eric Little. Some of you have not, possibly. But Eric Little was a famous Olympian. He competed in, at Paris in the 1924 Olympics. He was a Scotsman who was actually born to missionary parents in China. Pretty fascinating guy. He was sent away to boarding school in England at the age of 10. And as I was at boarding school, he found out and just discovered as he grew that he was an amazing athlete. He competed in a variety of athletics, but track by far and away was, the, I mean, was his number one sport. And they said he was just this amazing runner. Uh, people would come from far around just to see him. Newspapers would print articles about him because he, had, he was not only an amazing runner, but he had a very unorthodox running style. He would cock his head back and he would l- run with his mouth wide open as he ran. And people would say, you know, as he was losing a race, and uh, somebody said, oh, he's done for today. And a Scotsman would say, he ain't cocked his head back yet and opened his mouth. <laughs> and then he does, and the guy just takes off. I mean, he was an amazing guy. But what most people don't know is that after he was an Olympian, he went on to become a missionary, just like his parents. Now, he's most famous for, as I mentioned before, of competing in the 1924 Olympics, which he was competing in the 100 meters and the 200 meters. But when the schedule was released, weeks in advance, it came out that the the 100 meters, as well as the 4x100, which he was also a part of, uh, was on the Sabbath day. Being a Christian, he had a very great conviction that was not to work or do anything on the Sabbath day. So he withdrew himself from the race, and he decided to start training for the 400 meters, a race that he had done before, but he wasn't necessarily the best at. So the day of the race comes, and he just takes off. And at those days, most people would sprint. 400 meters is a very strange race. It was considered a middle-distance race back then, but today it's much more of a sprint. And he's one of the first people to kind of help pioneer that. Because see, what would happen is the runners would start off with the first 100 meters and 200 meters and just sprint hard and then try to just, you know, kind of coast for a little bit and then sprint again in the last 50 meters to see who would win. But Little starts off in the first 100 meters and takes off, I mean, like lightning. And he gets to the first 100 meters, he gets to the second 100 meters, and then he has no choice but to do what for the rest of the race? Sprint! He sprints all the way to the end. Even when people are coming at him, he's still sprinting, and he wins the race. And he becomes this very famous Olympian, and then becomes a very famous missionary, where he goes off to China, he marries, he has two daughters, and his wife gets pregnant with a third. When the Japanese aggression came to China, uh, it was the, the Britain reported that it was, uh, or really advised those who were British nationals to leave His wife was a Canadian, but he was fearful for his family, so he sent them back home to Canada while he himself stayed and took a rural mission training post along with his brother who was a doctor. I mean, he sacrificed himself just taking care of older people and those that were sick, and they had no medicine. And then eventually what happened is he, uh, the Japanese came, the the army, and he was put into like almost like a prison camp. It was an internment camp. And he became a great leader there, along with other uh, missionaries that were in prison from the China Inland Mission. And he was just sacrificing himself for these people. They said, it's been said that many of the missionaries were too busy moralizing one another and caught up in petty differences. And he devoted himself with helping the elderly, helping the sick, and taking care of those uh, who were less fortunate, as well as teaching Bible lessons. And the the time came through negotiation through Churchill that uh, he could be released. But he decided to give his spot to a pregnant woman. And then he started suffering a lot more. It turns out that he had a brain tumor. And he died five weeks before he, the whole camp would have been liberated. It's a very fascinating story. But I look at his life and I see an individual who was running to win. He was running till the end. And he was running, I mean, physically, but he was also running spiritually. And there's two types of running. If you've ever been in athletics, and it, and it applies to a lot of different things. You can play to win or play not to lose. I've been on athletic teams. You can do that. You can play not to lose. You're fearful. You just want to do enough to get ahead. But then there's those who just play until the end, saying, I'm not just going to try to to win or try not to lose here. I want to try to sacrifice myself to accomplish that goal. And that's what Little did. He ran to win till the end of his life. I mean, he was physically ran that way, and spiritually he ran that way. Now, I look at Little's life, and I, I think of Elijah, because he's, after all, he goes up in a chariot of fire. I mean, it's, it's by no mistake that the movie is named Chariots of Fire. I think the two are, go hand in hand. Because Elijah, he's running to the end. He's running to win the race, as is Elisha. So today, I'd like to look at Elijah and Elisha's lives and show and, and see what does it mean for us by looking at their life 
What does it mean for us to run to win in our period of time, in our day and age? So I'd ask you to take out your notes and follow along with me. First of all, and this is my first point, is that they possessed a hardcore devotion. A hardcore devotion. Elijah was devoted. He had to have been. He was speaking out against a king. An entire kingdom. An entire nation. Sometimes he felt like he was the only one that was left. He said, There's no, one, no other prophets are left. Nothing else is going on. It's only me. He was devoted. I mean, you have to be devoted to listen to God and hear God's voice and obey when all the cards are against you. It's easy to obey when the whole crowd is going along. It's a lot more difficult to obey when everybody goes against you. See, Elijah obeyed. And he was devoted to the Lord. When God said, go to the brook of Cherith, he went. Even when it probably didn't make sense. I've comm- make sense. I've commanded the ravens there to feed you. First logic would be, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And he does. And then he says, now I've, I, I want you to go to the widow of Zarephath. And he's sitting there going, why do I want to go to a widow? A widow was the lowest of the low in a pagan land nonetheless. But he goes. I mean, he is a devoted man. Then he's to confront Ahab. We've, we remember going through the story when he goes up and he confronts Ahab and he, he lays down the challenge with the 450 prophets of Baal. I mean, this man was devoted. And Elisha was devoted too. Elisha is the one that Elijah anoints to come after him. He's his successor. But notice in our text for today, if you, if you remember it, he says, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. He goes, stay here. Elisha says, no. As the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not go. I'm going with you. I mean, I will not stay here. I'm going to go with you. He says, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he goes, as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will, I, I'm not going to stay here. I'm with you. I'm devoted to you. I'm not letting go. That's reminiscent for those who are a little bit more familiar with your Bibles of the book of Ruth, is it not? Remember the story of Ruth and Naomi? And Ruth was a Moabitess in the land of Moab. And she, she marries and uh, Naomi is her mother-in-law, but of course her husband dies, as well as her brother-in-law dies, leaving her and her sister-in-law, whose name is Orpah. And they're, they're both widows, as well as their mother-in-law. The mother-in-law, Naomi, had this just big fit of depression. She says, I'm going back to my homeland, because she was from uh, Bethlehem. She was not from Moab. So she gets ready to turn home, and the girls are coming along with her, and she goes, go back home. If I were to have children right now, would, would you wait around for them? Because at that time, there was a view called the Levi view of marriage that it was required that if a, a man were to die and uh, left, had no children, it was his brother's responsibility to marry her and then have children through her, and those children would be considered his brothers. She says, so are you going to wait around for me to have kids? Go back to your homeland, your, your father's house, and marry. Find some happiness. So Orpah leaves. But what does Ruth do? She says, no. No, I'm going with you. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. And where you live, I will live. And where you die, I will die. She was devoted. We see that Elijah and Elisha were devoted to the Lord, most of all. But we also see that they were also devoted to one another. Elisha especially was devoted to God's servant. He was, had a hardcore devotion and following the Lord. Now, what does this devotion involve, though? I mean, we could talk about being devoted, but what did it involve, especially for them? The first thing that it involved was patient waiting, or patiently waiting. We don't like to wait, especially in our culture. We hate waiting. Do you not like waiting? Who here does not like waiting? Who thinks one day shipping is too long? (laughs) Microwaves, too slow. (laughs) I mean, many of us are that way, you know? I mean, it's just too much. We want it now. We want to have it our way. We want everything that way. And the problem is, is we've taken that mentality and we've applied that spiritually. God forgive us. Being a Christian involves a lot of patient waiting. Elijah waited on the Lord. He had to wait three and a half years for the drought. I mean, he had to wait at the brook of Cherith. He had to wait at the widow's house. He had to wait during all this time for the people to to come face to face with their sin. He had to wait. And even when he was praying, he was waiting on the Lord. And he was persistent in his praying, but he kept waiting on God. Waiting on God. He was patiently waiting. And and Elisha did too. He was also also patiently waiting. We see that he gets anointed in 1 Kings chapter 19 or 20, anointed to succeed Elijah. Now that was during the reign of King Ahab. We learned last week there was another king that came after him. So Ahab dies. 
There's another king, King Ahaziah, and he comes and goes. He reigns about two years. So there's at least a period of five years going on between um, when he's being anointed and when he's going to take, take on that responsibility. He has to patiently wait. And he's waiting on Elijah. Now, how about us? Are we patiently waiting on the Lord? Have we laid a request out before the Lord and we just want to take it and rather than wait on it, we try to take it and do our own way? Maybe it's a job promotion. Maybe instead of waiting on God's timing, we try to do, we start sacrificing our integrity to get ahead. Try to stab other people in the back because we know that they're stabbing us in the back. What about with uh, looking for a mate? Some of you out there are single and looking for a spouse or wait, looking for someone and, and you're saying, I'm waiting on God, but God's not bringing anybody. And, and then you sacrifice the standards that God has laid forth in His Word and then you just take and, and you say, I'm not waiting on you, Lord, anymore because you don't, know what, you don't have what's best for me. And instead you say, I'm going to do it my own way. And then you wake up one morning going, I made a giant mistake. I've seen that all too often. Many different young men and young women sacrifice what God's Word says for what seems quick and expedient and what everybody else is doing. And then they lose themselves in the process. We have to patiently wait on the Lord. What is it that God has placed upon you you need to be waiting on? What are you trying to hold on to? And try to do your own thing rather than wait on God. See, their, they, uh, their hardcore devotion is seen by how they were waiting. Waiting. But they were also not just waiting, they were passionately working. Both Elijah and Elisha were passionately working in their devotion. I mean, even up until the end, what is Elijah doing? The Lord has sent me to Bethel. I'm still working. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. I'm still working. The Lord has sent me to Jordan. I'm still working. He's continually and passionately working. And Elisha's right there alongside of him, working. So it's waiting and working. See, that's what we do is while we're still in the flesh and we wait till Jesus comes again, we wait on the Lord and when He's going to reveal Himself, but we're continually working in all that time. That's what we're supposed to be doing is waiting on the Lord in His timing, patiently trusting in Him, and then working, sharing the truth of Christ, doing righteous deeds, doing good works, not a means of salvation, but simply being good stewards of what God has trusted entrusted to us. That means being kind and loving at your workplace. That means being a good student and a good employee. That means being a good parent or a good homemaker. Whatever God, in the sphere that God has placed you, you are to be passionately working in that place. Being good stewards. Some of us, we, we think, oh, we don't need to do that. And unfortunately, I've talked to some different employers. And uh, when, I was, when I was out of a job and I was looking for a job and they said, you're a Christian, I don't normally hire Christians. I said, why? They said, because I find out more often than not that when they discover I'm a Christian, then they just start relaxing. That shouldn't be that. I mean, and that's hopefully a rare case. I've known other different people that hire Christians all the time because of they're passionately working. Because they want to show by their lives that God is on the throne. That Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus loves them. Because we know that we are some of the only Bibles that people will ever read. Working until God takes us home. I think of great George Whitfield. He was an evangelist in the 18th century. Amazing guy, really. He was a contemporary of Jonathan Edwards and of John and Charles Wesley, the founders of Methodism. He was an amazing evangelist. He was born in England. He came to the United States about seven different times. He established uh, a mission. In, not the United States. It was the colonies then. And he established this, this orphanage in Georgia. And he was passionately preaching. Matter of fact, at the end of his life, when he died at the age of 55, it was said that he preached 18,000, does that have that right? 18,000 sermons to 10 million people. Now, this is before modern electronics and everything going on. He was preaching all the time. And in 1770, the 55-year-old continued on his preaching tour in the colonies as if he were still a young itinerant, insisting, I would rather wear out than rust out. That's a good picture. And even on the last sermon that he did, he, he fell ill in September 1770 after preaching to crowds in New England. And on September 29th, he prayed for strength to deliver one last sermon. At first, he was barely able to stand, but he rallied to preach on faith and works for two hours on top of a barrel. Later that night, he had a severe asthma attack, and although a doctor was summoned, he died at 6 o'clock that following morning. And he's buried in Newburyport in a church in New England. 
Pretty amazing man. I mean, he was an amazing man that he was filled with the Spirit of God, passionately preaching the Word of God. What's amazing about him, he would stand outside and preach, which at that time was not was unheard of. You were to preach in church. You were to preach out in front of crowds. And he would gather tens and thousands of people. People would find out that he was, he was coming, and they would get in their, their horse and buggy, and they would make their way there just to hear him. But it also gathered a lot of mockers. Matter of fact, there would be interesting. One man uh, saw him preaching and started mimicking him to the side making fun of him as his friends laughed. And as he was preaching on, he ends up stopping in the middle of what he's, he's mocking Whitfield on, falls on his knees, repents, and comes to know the Lord right there. See, God's very powerful. God is powerful. His Word is powerful. When we are passionately working, God will do great things for us and through us. When we are passionately working and burning ourselves out for Him. But he also, we can also see in Elijah's life that he was not just passionately wor- working. And that's not, the, that's not the essential thing, being completely devoted. I mean, that's a, a part of it. But it also involves a little bit more to run to win as a believer. It involves cultivating a humble disposition. A humble disposition. Elijah was a pretty humble guy. Now you'd think with all the things that he'd seen and done, he would, would be touting that everywhere he went. You know, I called fire down from heaven three times. I prayed and it rained. How's your prayer life? You know, you don't see him doing that. You don't see him doing that at all. He's he's a humble individual. Matter of fact, we see in the text, we see him saying, the Lord has sent me to, to Bethel. And then the sons of the prophets. There's these seminaries that were started there that Elijah probably started. And he's going, in essence, to say goodbye, to courage, to, to, to let them know uh, maybe that he's departing. We're not exactly sure how they knew, but they come to Elisha and they say, you know, your master's leaving today. And he says, yes, I know. Keep quiet. Now, the question is, is how did those prophets know? Either Elijah told them, which is one possibility, but Amos chapter 7, verse 13 says, the Lord doesn't do anything without revealing it to his servants, the prophets. So he's revealing it to his people that Elisha's leaving. I mean, that Elijah is leaving. So the sons of the prophets know. Elisha knows, but he says, I know. Keep quiet. Why would he say that? Because he didn't, because Elijah was a humble man. He didn't want to draw unnecessary attention to the servant of God. He wanted to focus on the Lord. So rather than saying Elijah's going and everybody having a farewell party, Elijah didn't want that. He didn't want that at all. Matter of fact, he kept telling Elisha to stay behind. Why? Because he knew how he was going to leave. He didn't necessarily want to leave that in Elisha. I mean, Elisha to see that, that could really freak him out and think, how am I going to live a life like that? Look at that guy. Look at that. He's got a chariot. But he persisted. See, Elijah had this humble disposition. We know that our Lord had a humble disposition. I mean, our desire is, we're, we're proud individuals. Even, we can even be righteously, actually self-righteously proud. But it's masked under the image of righteousness, of what everything we do. I used to teach Sunday school. I ran a backyard Bible club. I'm faithful. Okay. Wow. You don't see Jesus doing that. Do you? I mean, Jesus comes humble on a donkey. During Palm Sunday, Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is He, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I mean, Jesus humbled Himself by taking on human flesh. That's pretty amazing to think about, really. That the Creator would put on the creation. That He would make Himself susceptible or underneath finite earthly parents, Joseph and Mary, and He would listen to them. I mean, when they told Him, don't touch that, He goes, I think I got it. I mean, what, what was that like? Parenting Jesus. Can you imagine that, parents? You wouldn't have any discipline problems. Model child. <laughs> but the amazing thing is, is he obeyed them. He obeyed them. He humbled himself. And then he humbled himself by taking, taking on 12 disciples and spending day after day with them and taking all of their, their problems and misunderstandings and failings and sins and unbelief. Day after day after day. After a while, we get weary. Jesus still loved him. He continued humbling himself. Then he humbles himself that he is, he is placed in an unjust trial. And then he's flogged, scourged, 
And he goes to die a criminal's death on the cross. That's pretty humbling. He could have said when the high priest Caiaphas said, I, I, I adjourn you by the living God. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Jesus says, I am. I mean, Jesus could have called down legions of angels. He could have killed that guy in a minute. Wouldn't have been hard. He could have done any of that whenever he wanted to do it. But he didn't. He humbled himself. We are, as believers in Christ, if we're going to run to win, we have to have a humble disposition, which goes completely antithetical to this world. This world wants to trump everything we have, all of our accomplishments, nice cars, nice 401k, big house, the American dream. God save us from the American dream. Because that's not God's dream. The problem is, as many churches today, and I hope and pray that we are never one, we have integrated the two. And we have baptized the American dream by putting Christ's name on it. And the American dream is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He never calls us to build big houses and I mean, do all of these other things. He calls us to surrender ourselves to Him and take bold steps of Christ. I'm reading this book right now. It's uh, by David Platt. Uh, it's called, uh, isn't it, Radical? Radical. It's an amazing book. This pastor starts taking the claims of Jesus seriously and preaching them to his congregation. And people, he goes to the story of the rich young ruler. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, you know the commandments? And he says, well, I've kept these since I was a youth. He goes, one thing that you lack, go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. And the young man goes away sad for he had great possessions. And this, this pastor reports, he says, I, I have the joy to report to you that some of my people are taking that to heart and they're selling their homes. They're, they're going off to the mission field because that's what God has called them to do. He goes, too often we try to explain it away and say that's not for everybody. That's true, but there is for somebody. It's for some of us. Some of us in this room. God is calling to go to the mission field. God is calling us to sacrifice everything, to humble ourselves, to go against what the world tells us to do. It's not about how much we acquire, it's how much we give up. How much we give up to the glory of God. So how, does it, how do we have a humble disposition, though? How do we have that? Well, there's two things, and they're pretty simple. Number one, it's being aware of our weakness. And that means doing an inventory. Because sometimes what we try to do is we, we try to blow ourselves up like the Macy's Day balloon. You ever done that? <laughs> this is how good I am, how much I've done. I've done it. God forgive me. But you have to be aware of it. Because there are certain times that God comes into our life to remind us that we're not as big as we think we are. That God doesn't need us. Do you know that? God doesn't need you. God chooses to use you. Big difference. He doesn't need you. He chooses to use you. He can easily get it accomplished by somebody else. I'm amazed by the book of Job. Job, he's, he's maintaining his cause in Job, 20, 38, in Job 38. for He's a righteous man. And there's some claims that are made about God in that period of time. And God shows up in the whirlwind. And he says, brace yourself like a man. Get ready, because I'm going to talk to you. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? There think you there's a lot you don't understand why you're suffering? Where were you when I parted the waters and I said, come here and go no more? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the heavens? Where were you when I did all this? And Job says, I despise myself. <laughs> Forgive me. I spoke about things too lofty for me to know. See, God... It involves knowing our weakness and being aware that we are finite creatures. We need sleep. We need nourishment. We need food. And, and sometimes we think we're so big. If you think you're so big, I, fast for a little while. You will find out real quick that you're not as big as you thought you were. I know many of you have been fasting during this period of time, and I, I, pray, I pray that you continue it. If you haven't done it yet, you say, I, I haven't fasted, you know, but maybe I should this week. Holy, fast this week. It's, and I guarantee it's going to be hard. Maybe you should give up TV. Maybe you should give up. I know some of you are trying to give up caffeine and you have the headaches. Those will go away. It takes time. Go without food, you'll feel hunger and hunger pains and all these things will be going through your body. But it's reminding that man is not sustained by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So this week, take that time. Turn off the TV. Close the computer. Spend time with your family. Behold the glory of the Lord. So it means being aware of our weakness, but it also means being aware of God's greatness. 
See, it's, it's when we get a picture of who God is that everything comes into, comes into picture. The book of Isaiah, chapter 6, when I, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and it, the train of His robe fills the temple and he sees the angels circling the throne of God crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He despises himself because he's, he's seeing God for who He is in all of His purity. He thinks He's going to be wiped off the face of the earth in just a moment. See, when we get a picture of God's greatness, we don't have a very good picture of God. We think of God just a little bit bigger than us. He's our friend. He's our cosmic buddy. He's the sovereign Lord of everything. He's the King of the universe. There's no problem that He can't handle. There's no life that He can't transform. There's nothing too difficult for God. He is our master. He is, he is the creator, the self-sustainer, the one that the great I am, the one that was, that was not, and forever will be, the one who will come again. I love the picture of Jesus in the book of Revelation when he shows up with flaming fire and a sword coming out of his mouth, and his eyes are burning. I mean, he is awesome. He's amazing to see. That's why you even see John falling at his feet as though a dead man. Because we get a picture of who God is. And it's, it's not this, this pleasant, soft, effeminate Jesus. It's the ruling, conquering King. That is awesome to behold. So we need to get a picture and see in order to have a humble disposition, we have to be aware of our weakness and get a picture of God's greatness. Knowing God's greatness. Elijah knew God's greatness. He had seen the fire come down from heaven. Remember, he had even seen the earthquake and the fire when he was in the cleft of the rock. He had seen all of these things. He knew how great God was. That's why he could have a holy disposition. He was running to win, not for himself. Same with Elisha, not for himself, but for God's glory and His greatness to be seen in their lives. Now, running to win also means pursuing holy desires. See, right before Elijah is taken up, he, says, he asks Elisha a question. He says, what do you want me to do for you before I go? And what does Elisha say? Give me a double portion of your spirit. See, that's a holy desire. It's a holy desire that he had. He was seeking God's power. That's what this holy desire involved. Seeking God's power. He knew that he had a divine task. To, to do. He had God, he, had, he was a prophet of God, and he knew that he couldn't accomplish all of these different things in his own strength. See, many of us today, we try to do things in our own strength. All the time. Our own strength. We try to make everything work in our own strength rather than relying on the Lord, seeking God's power in our lives. See, we're, because mainly what we're trying to do in some ways is we're trying to serve ourselves rather than serve God's purpose. See, we should be seeking God's power to serve God's purpose. I'm reminded of King Solomon when he was getting ready to... He, he becomes the king of Israel after his, his father David, great King David. I mean, he left such a legacy. And God appears to Solomon and He goes, what shall I do for you? And He says, give me wisdom to shepherd your people. I can't do it. He goes, because you have not asked for your enemies to have victory over your enemies, because you haven't asked for riches, I'm going to give you all these things because you asked for wisdom to shepherd my people. It was accomplishing my purpose. That's why I want to give you these things. See, the problem is, is we want all the accoutrements. We don't want the center. We want to have all the great things, the, the, the desserts, and not eat the meat and the healthy things. See, God wants us to have the healthy things. He wants us to, to be able to seek His power in order to serve God's purpose. But we don't. We don't long for that. I mean, do you long for God to receive glory? Do you? Or are you just going through the motions? Do you long to see Him work? Do we long to see Him work? Do we long to see, God's pe- to see people transformed? See, if we operate in the flesh and with all the things we can do, then we will only see the results of what we can do. But if we long to see what God can do, then He will only do the things that shows that it's only He can do it. See, that's why it was so important in Gideon's life. Remember, Gideon was facing this army of 130,000 people. And he had 33,000 men. And God says, that's still too much. You're going to boast in it. 22,000 leave. 10,000 remain. He goes, you still have too many. How many are left? 300. Why? Because God was going to receive glory there, not man. 
It's not about us receiving glory. It's about Him receiving glory. And when we put His interests above our own, then God delights in answering our requests by showing Himself, by manifesting Himself. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, pursue love, but eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. Why? That God will be glorified in the midst because it's for the common good of the body, not to build up just the saints so they get comfortable, but it's to serve other people. So when other people walk in the door, they say, surely God is in this place. That's what it is. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. Just look at it. Study it. To see God working in individuals' lives. To hunger to see Him work. Our God is a God of the supernatural. And anyone who tells you anything else, you're not being at all biblical. You have sacrificed the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's what Thomas Jefferson did when when he took the Bible and he removed all the pages that he didn't like. Anything with supernatural was removed. But sometimes we do that today. Why? Why do we do that? Do we not hunger for God to work in people's lives? Do we not believe that God, that is the God of the Old Testament, is also the God of the New Testament? Or do we say the God of the Bible is just the God of the Bible, but He's not the God of today? Lord God, forgive us. Having a hunger to see God work, which means humbling ourselves and praying for Him to work. I mean, that's the biggest supernatural tool that we have. I mean, he's given us, I mean, tools that are weapons that will, the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but are spiritual to demolish strongholds. But we don't do that. We don't believe in prayer. We don't believe in the power of God, do we? I hope that we do. God's word is powerful, living and powerful. That book that you hold in your hand or it's on your iPhone or Palm Pre or whatever, that's a sword. That slays people's hearts. Transforms them when they hear the Word of God. It's living and active. I mean, it's like carrying around sometimes. You know they have those bombs that didn't go off? They thought were duds, but they're really active. I mean, some of us think the Bible's a dud, but it's really active. That's what it is. I mean, we're going, it's a dud. No, it's not. Pound on it a little harder and you'll find out. It's living and active. So we need to seek God's power. That's what Elisha did. He, wanted to, to, he had to step in the shoes of this amazing prophet so he could serve God's purpose. Now we know that we have purposes generally, and that's to bring glory to God, but we also have purposes specifically. What's your purpose? Where has God placed you? Who is, what are the relationships that God has placed you in? It's by no mistake. God has placed you there for a reason. Joseph, he thought it was you know, a mistake. No, God, he figured it out later. He says, God has sent me before you to preserve life. I went through all this pain for God's purpose so that you might live. What is God's purpose in your life? What is God doing? See, God has a purpose for you. Even We can see that clearly in the book of Acts chapter 13. When we're recounting David's life, we read, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. What's your purpose? What has God made you for? To raise your kids to the glory of God? I mean, that's ordained. The book of Malachi says, what was the one God seeking in the union between a husband and a wife? Godly offspring. That's what God wanted. Parents, are you teaching your children in the, in the ways of the Lord? I mean, or your grandparents. Maybe your children aren't walking with the Lord and you're trying to take up that mantle. Pray for them. Pray for your grandchildren. Just You might be there for them to touch their lives. Young people, what is the purpose that God has for you? You know what? It's not to see what kind of shoes you can get and how good you can be in athletics. Let me tell you that. Because your ability will fade away. It's going to be gone like that. One day your knees are going to give out and you're going to find out that you can't play ball the way that you used to. You're going to wake up, you're going to have back pains, and Icy Hot will be your best friend. (laughs) Along with ibuprofen. Because you can't do that anymore. We know that it's not for all of these young things. That's why it says, in the book of Ecclesiastes, talks about young men flee these selfish pursuits. Or 1 Timothy talks about that too. Not pursuing ourselves on these fleeting pleasures. Because they're going to end nowhere but in disgrace and destruction and pain. Might be fun for a little while, but it's going to catch up. So let's continue to look at our text. Serving God's purpose. 
Trusting in the Lord who can do all that we could ever ask or imagine. You know, that's what Ephesians says. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than, we could ask, all, than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You know that? God is able to do more than we could ask or think. I remember challenging my church in Massachusetts. I had an older group of prayer meeting. I said, let's think God thoughts. Let's dream God dreams. And they said, well, we'd like to have another, you know, some more seating in the church. That's not God's dream. And I started, coming, what's God's dream? What's God's dream? And this 78-year-old lady named Nellie, God bless her, she goes, okay, God's dream. We should get a helicopter and put it right on the church. I said, you're thinking, but wrong. You know, that's not what we're looking for is a helipad and that kind of thing. But we're looking to see God work. Because you know He can do more than we could ask or imagine. We don't believe that. We only think it's a little bit more. We only give God a little bit of sliver. What would it be like if we would have the faith to believe that God could do all that we could ask or imagine? I mean, think about that. There are times in Jesus' ministry where He could not do many miracles because of their unbelief. Could that be why we don't see people being transformed? Because of our unbelief? Rather than our belief of taking God at His word? I pray that's not the case for, for us. It wasn't the case in Elijah's life. I mean, he had faith. He was running to win. Where's your faith? Is it in what you can do and what is safe or what God can do? Elijah and Elisha were running the race to win. It was about what God can do and they were running until the end. And what does that mean? It means, number four, it means running until our heavenly departure. Running until our heavenly departure until God takes us home or we either he comes again or we die and we could see that our departure is not the end no if we are faithful then our departure will i mean it's not the end because we know that our lives will live on in essence meaning that we will be in the presence of god but god will use our lives in the example that we we left behind to increase others faith that's letter A under port number 4. Look at verse 12. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two. This is Elisha. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. See, his faith was increased. He said, I'm leaving that life behind. I'm taking up his mantle. I'm going to follow him. I'm going I'm to I'm follow him. And what's he do? He takes up the cloak, he wraps it around, and he goes to the Jordan, and he slaps it down. He goes, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He's saying, my faith has been increased. I mean, he'd never done that before. He'd seen Elijah do it, but now he's doing it. All because Elijah had left in a whirling wind of the chariots of fire. He said, I, my faith is increased. See, when we are running until our heavenly departure, God will use your life to inspire others that are left behind. They will be challenged by your faith. Think about it. Think about that person that you might have in your family that left a godly legacy. It could have been somebody who was even a shut-in that was praying all the time that you got in their presence and you knew they'd been in the presence of God. I knew of a, a 95-year-old woman when she passed away. She had this one man that uh, she was at my church and I'd barely known her. I'd only been there for a few months when she passed away. One man who had had surgery when he was a little baby boy. She decided to pray for him. She prayed for him every day. And he's now in his 40s. And she said, you know, when he said, when she died, he goes, I felt she was gone. She left a legacy. She'd been praying for him, but he, he said, I feel, I don't feel her praying like I did before. He said, there was something vacant there. But then we look at those people and they say, they fought on, we can too. It inspire our faith. See, that's what I'm amazed at what God is doing in China right now. There's a movement in China called Back to Jerusalem. The Chinese have taken it upon themselves to bring the gospel back to Jerusalem. And that means going through some uh, Muslim nations. And they said, we are committed to dying. They said, if we die, somebody else will take, their pl take my place. Amen. I mean, they're committed to it. They said, we will do it. You can't do it. We can do it. And our lives are nothing compared to the, the glory of Christ. We're preparing to show that Christ is more valuable than our very lives. And they're dying. I mean, they will give themselves up. They don't care. They are so devoted. And that increases others' faith. When you see someone die like that, you're saying they show that Christ is more valuable, you say, I want to do it too. I'm going to follow that. I'm going to follow that. 
to see what Jesus did. I want to follow that. I mean, and it's following the example of Christ. Because that's what Christ did. He loved not his life until death. For the joy so before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. That's an amazing picture from Hebrews. It will inspire others to follow. I look at Hebrews 11 and I'm inspired. Hebrews 11, chapter 30, and verse 32, it's an amazing tribute as it lists what these saints had done. And what more shall I say, the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, for time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. What a picture. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. This is my favorite part. Of whom the world was not worthy. Now, how many of us, I mean, we're not facing that. I mean, at least not right now. We may be. But how many of us are willing to live in such a way that the world is not worthy? That means being bold for Christ at your job. What if you get fired? What's going to happen? Will God, can God not take care of you? Are you fearful? Is it about what you can do or what God can do? I mean, let's get personal. We can talk about... Being sawn in two, but the reality is, is many of us aren't facing that, but we are facing that if we speak about Christ, we can lose our job. If we share Christ with our family members, they may not talk to us. It's a form of persecution, is it not? Of rejection. God wants us to be bold, because when we are, it will inspire others to follow, and it will increase. I mean, it will increase others' faith, and it will inspire others to follow. That's what, it, that's what I look at when I look at Elijah's life. We're standing at the end of this series and I go, I want to be like Elijah. Don't you? You want to be like him? Be a bold witness to Christ and what he has done? I mean, what God would do, how he could call the fire down from heaven, if he can still do that, then he can transform individuals' lives. He can help us forsake and defeat sin. He can help us grow in righteousness. He can help us trust and see when everything, no one else can see through what's going on. It's an amazing picture. Hopefully when our, we, we depart, that can be said of us. I'm amazed uh, at, at the death story of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody started Moody Bible Institute. Dwight Lyman Moody, the great evangelist in the 19th century. On his deathbed is the most inspiring story. And Before he ever died, he said this. The papers even published it. He goes, someday you will read in the papers, D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive now. I mean, more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher. That is all. Out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto His glorious body. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. At his death, no more memorable sentences on one's deathbed could have ever been spoken. It was just such triumphant passing away as his dear friends would have wished. Where have you ever read better sayings than these? He said at his deathbed in, in December, I think it was 23rd, 1899, is this dying? Why, this is bliss. There is no valley. I have been within the gates. Earth is receding. Heaven is opening. God is calling. I must go. And when he went away from them for a little time and came back, he said that he had seen his loved ones in heaven giving their names. And when it was suggested that he had been dreaming, he assured them that it was not so, but that he had actually been within the gates of heaven. Thus his noble life went out, but he being dead, yet still he lives. May all of us run the race faithfully until the end. May we be like Eric Little as he ran that physical race. May we run the spiritual race just like he did, just like Elijah did. And we look to the day when we go to our heavenly home. That's our home, to go and be with the Lord forever, to live as Christ, to die as game. How many of us can say that? Can we say to live as Christ, to die as game? So many, some here are so deathly afraid of death. You can't say it's game. Where is your hope? Where is your faith? We must all run the race to win, and we all can. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. It doesn't matter how bad you've messed up in the past. 
There's nothing beyond the grace of God while you still have breath. God has given His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to die for your sins, to take them away, to wipe the slate clean. And through Him, you can run to win, just like Eric Little, just like Elijah, and just like Elisha. It takes a heart that is willing to do what God has laid forth in His Word. Trusting in Him, believing Him had His Word, but it means repenting and believing in Him. That He died on the cross for you. To give you life. To give you a purpose. May we all trust and follow Him in faith. Let's do it. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful that You gave Your life for us. Lord, that You gave such an individual as Elijah. That we might look at his life as as well as Elisha's and see what it means to run to win. May we be boldly and boldly devoted to You, trusting in You at Your Word. Lord, increase our faith. Help our unbelief. Lord, we, we look at the stories in Scripture and we see such a difference between the faith of those within the Scriptures and our own. But Lord, just as the man prayed, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, help our unbelief. We long to see You at work, transforming lives, seeing Your glory made known in this place and in our hearts, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools. Lord, we do long for You to show Yourself Help us to believe and trust in You. Help us to humble ourselves in prayer. Help us to focus on You. Help us to tell other people about who You are. Help us to be bold in our testimony this week and in the days to come. As many people's hearts are softened, Lord, help us to take the promise within Your Word that the field is white for harvest. Let us not look at the the charades or the the facade of the enemy that he puts forth. Because, Lord, he's trying to show us that the, the, wheels are barren, the fields are barren, but we're looking at your word, Lord. The fields are white. We know that it's growing, that it's there, that people are ready to respond. Help us to believe that in faith. Help us to proclaim your word this week and forever. And, Lord, may you receive glory in our church, transform lives. If there's someone here who's struggling with sin, convict them of it. Help them to see how you defeated it all on the cross, that you give us hope, that you help us to run to win, even when we are weak in faith, even when we've been self-righteous, that if we come to you in humble repentance, that you will by no means cast us out, that you will transform us. Lord, your grace is sufficient for all of us, giving all of us hope. Lord, some of us have been sitting in the race. We aren't running to win. We're running not to lose. We've just tried to start it even walking. Lord, help us to run again. Help us to be encouraged and drawn to You. Inspire us. Forgive us when we, we feel tired and we want to give up. Help us not to grow weary in doing good because we know that we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. May Your name receive glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.